Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Amaphidon. Thanks for tuning in. This is Faith Amaphidon with BNN News reporting from, you guessed it, Dorchester. I'm here at the Open Streets Dorchester event on Ashmont Street in Dorchester Ave. The street is blocked off. People are out and about. We're about to have a good time. Let's go check it out. BNN News had the best time at the final Open Streets event of the season. Our first stop on our walk was the local fire department where we covered essential fire tips. From there, we were in vendor paradise with a variety of art, crafts and goods to choose from. Every table more enticing than the last. Families enjoyed the good weather and the many opportunities to unwind and have fun along the way. But what's in open streets without some music? And for anyone in need of a break, a pedicab was just a call away. BNN exercised our green thumb as we learned about upcoming green spaces in Dorchester. Community organizations made themselves available to talk one-on-one with guests. And for anyone in need of a COVID vaccination, Open Streets Dorchester had you covered. Yet the heart of the event was a spotlight on Dorchester businesses, old and new, which are re-emerging after a difficult two years. Corrine Williams, owner and operator of Noir Essence Unisex Salon, was grateful for the reintroduction and engagement. We've been open a year and a half, and we've actually wanted to let the community know that we're here. Um, this used to be a barbershop prior, so I think a lot of folks still think it's a barbershop. So today we've had the opportunity to invite neighborhood families to come in and see our business know that we are here we've actually got a lot of feedback we've gotten a lot of walk-ins people take our business cards so the message was sent which is what we were looking for we also gave out a lot of coupons and gave out you know merchandise from our salon so i think we also as a business need to give back to our community so i think today's event is also good for us to let the community know we're here but also for us to give back to our community as well The day was a success in having the community out to celebrate the best of Dorchester. This is not what you typically see on the news, but this is who we are in Dorchester. Community, family, all, everything wrapped up in one, supporting local businesses. This is who we are in Dorchester. Yeah, this is how you activate a neighborhood, activate activate a business sector by getting people out um, to support these local businesses and also to promote different modes of transportation, right? Uh, whether it's um, cyclists, uh, walking up and down the street, you know, healthy living. This is how we activate and promote all those things that we have promoting here in the city of Boston. And reimagine what the neighborhood can be. And an event like this where we were able to open the streets for people to come out and see how the street can be used differently, amazing. I saw more people out here biking than I usually do when I bike on this road because it's just folks are not ready to come out here. It's just it's too busy. Folks are not always showing the empathy and the compassion for folks to be able to travel in the way that they choose. So this this was a great opportunity talking to families about, hey, what is this like? Little kids thinking, I'm in the middle of the street. This is great. So we've opened the streets. It's very important for people to understand we've opened the streets for people to be able to come out and share it. Also in Dorchester, former Somerville Superintendent Mary Skipper embraces her first day as the new Boston Public Schools Superintendent.
Students at Trotter Elementary School began their week with a greeting from Superintendent Skipper on Monday. Before school began, students received VIP treatment as Skipper escorted them from the bus to their teachers. In her new role, the superintendent continues her student-led approach and efforts to create opportunity and access for all. It's been very emotional, especially last week because it was my final week in summer role. Um, but I feel well prepared. I, I can't say enough how the team has done such an excellent job with the transition, ensuring I have the information that I need. Um, I'm briefed on everything, been part of decision making. And so, you know, I come in today, you know, just um, nervous, excited, um, very hopeful, and um, just looking forward to collaborating and working um, with our city, with our mayor. You know, we're, we're blessed to have the mayor that we have, that um, she's so committed to our schools, to Chair Robinson and the school committee, uh, to our city council, and, uh, and certainly to the BPS team. So that all speaks to me of hope um, and, uh, and big expectation, and uh, we're going to do our best to meet those expectations. Superintendent Skipper is absolutely a collaborator and a consensus builder, and so, you know, it's a very difficult position. You're never going to make 100% of the people happy, but if you're in constantly involving the, the stakeholders, parents, educators, and students in the decision-making, uh, then I think you'll always have a better solution, uh, and more people will be on board than not, and I think that is definitely her style and something she brings to the district as well. And in East Boston, the mayor's office boosted awareness of the job opportunities to clean up the graffiti that covers the walls of over a thousand sites throughout the city. The spray-painted walls you pass every day have long been a part of the city landscape. But on Tuesday, Mayor Wu and Boston Constituency Services emphasized the need to create a team of people who want to help clean up the thousands of graffiti sites throughout the city. They also took the time to promote the many other city service positions available right now. Currently, the city of Boston employs about 18,000 people, and there's room for more. There are many, many important jobs that get you in the door to the wealth of professional development and teamwork and um, love for a city that jobs at city government really represent. And so whether it is driving a street sweeper or cleaning off graffiti or taking 911 calls or serving um, in our cafeterias, in our, in, in our schools. We have hundreds of vacant positions right now across the city, uh, 1,200 alone, immediately available on the city of Boston's website. And particularly in departments like this, this is the, the bread and butter of what we are proudest of in terms of the services we provide to residents, but we need to keep building up our ranks. And so we're especially looking for anyone, again, we're pushing hard on, on the hiring front today. There are opportunities available. If you, maybe you're employed, but you're, you work with an organization that could have the capacity to co-host a job fair along with us or help spread the word, or you know a, a friend or family member, we want to make those connections and really get into each and every one of our communities, multilingual communities, every single neighborhood. We want to see those jobs represented by our Boston residents. Those who take pride in their city and want to contribute to these efforts can apply for these positions at boston.gov forward slash career dash center. In Boston Common this week, dozens of addiction recovery advocates united to spread their message of optimism and hope to those who need it most. At the Parkman Bandstand, Voices of Recovery came together to recognize National Recovery Month. 
Thursday marked the 32nd annual Recovery Day celebration by MORE, the Massachusetts Organization for Addiction Recovery and Friends. The event commemorates the strength of those affected by addiction and supports those rebuilding. The open rally's message of hope carried through the following festivities at Faneuil Hall, where city leaders, activists and health professionals honored peer recovery coaches and support centers. I think it's very important that um, society understands that, um, you know, we, we're humans, even though we're addicts and made mistakes in our life, that we need support um, from everyone to understand that um, being in recovery takes a, 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 a whole, whole body of um, people supporting us and understanding that um, we deserve a second chance at life and making the right decisions. This could be somebody's brother, mother, sister, daughter, son. It doesn't matter. If this was your child out there or a loved one of yours, what kind of help would you want them to receive? And then go out and offer that kind of support to somebody you see out on the street that might be down on their luck, offering them compassionate support. While we support individuals, we need to fix this broken system. Numerous factors have created and perpetuated the crisis that we are existing in. Barriers to behavioral and mental health care, underinvestment in prevention, homelessness, poverty, substance use stigma, and structural racism. Data show that through the early part of 2021, black men made up the largest increase in opioid overdose deaths statewide. This emphasizes that there is a critical need to address racial inequity promote justice, and ensure that services that we offer are not available to some, they are available to all. This year, kids ruled the world at Roslindale Porch Fest, and their young musical talent was the spotlight of the event. So anyways, it was an incredible event. We had young people jamming in the hearts of Roslindale. Um, the houses, you know, it, that whole saying about if, you know, you don't see anyone there, there's no show going on. It could not have been uh, less true for this. Um, but it was an incredible event. Um, it was out all day jamming to some good old-fashioned tunes from Green Day. And the fact that kids five years old and up even know Green Day is blowing my mind. But anyways, we will take you to our next segment today, which is BNN News Interviews. So we're going to keep the music going today with our next clip. <laughs> Rosendale Porch Fest was awesome. And a part of it being such an amazing event were the True Delights, which were the kids who performed. Uh, and then I walked away finding out that many of them learned from you. Can you talk a little bit about your journey as a musician and where your passion for music comes from? Sure. Um, I started playing piano when I was like six or seven. Uh, I hated it. My mom made me do it. Um, and I'm super appreciative of that. I'm a musician now, you know, so she made a good decision. Um, <laughs> I moved on to trumpet, and then uh, around 12, I heard Guns N' Roses and quit all the other instruments and learned guitar because I wanted to be Slash. Um, <laughs> so I've, ever since then, I've been playing in bands, um, tons of bands, sometimes like five or six at a time um, my whole life. It's a big part of my life. It's what I enjoy to do. Um, and then as I got 
older, I started to teach. Um, it's just like a logical extension of the stuff I was already doing. I really enjoy it, so I wanted to give it to some other people. Hmm. Well, it definitely shows from the, the young people that we saw on Saturday. And uh, I was really impressed by the fact that they were performing Green Day. They were performing the Foo Fighters, a lot of artists who are outside of the generation that they grew up in. So what is it about rock music do you feel is speaking to these young people that you work with? Um, well, I think it's really fun. It's fun music to play. It's athletic. It's interesting. It has a lot of changes, you know. Um, I don't pick the music for the kids. I let them choose their own music. Uh, oh. So they all bring the, some song choices to band and then we vote. Um, so I think it's a lot of what they're exposed to at home, you know. But a lot of kids are surprisingly interested in music. Like, they're not just listening to, like, Top 40 on the radio. They're, like, diving deep uh, and they're looking for stuff. So I think especially as a kid, like, your music choice and what you listen to is a part of expressing yourself, you know, right. like the way you dress. So they're, like, looking for things that speak to them and then getting excited about it. Awesome. And how long have you been working with young students? So I started teaching when I was 19, so like 24 years now. Um, quite a bit. Uh, I used to do private lessons for a long time, and then uh, maybe about 12 years ago, uh, a friend of mine, I was teaching two of her sons, and she was like, these guys have some friends, they should start a band, you know, would you like to teach it? And I was like, definitely. Hmm. Uh, and then that went well, and then their friends wanted to start a band, and then their friends did, and it kind of just grew from there. Wonderful. And can you talk more about the, the rock program that you run? What does training look like for the students, and how do you know when they're ready for something like Roslindale Porch Fest? <laughs> um, so the... the program runs for about a school year. Um, that's the commitment. Most bands stay with me for a long time. Like my longest running band just left for college and they had been with me a decade. Wow. So, you know, I met them when they were seven. Um, but we basically run a, a school year. Uh, we start in the fall, assemble the band. Um, most bands are groups of friends, um, but sometimes I have like a wait list where I assemble kids that don't know each other. Always goes well. Um, they vote and choose some songs and we start learning it. Um, most of the bands are a really wide uh, range of abilities, so I write an arrangement that matches everybody. I'm trying to keep everybody challenged but not frustrated. Mm -hmm. um, throughout the school year, we'll just learn, uh, like a new band, like especially a young band will learn three songs in a year. Uh, the older bands learn more or more intricate songs, or they start writing their own songs. Uh, and then in the spring, I get a venue somewhere in town, and all the bands I teach play a show. Um, usually about 24 bands, so we do three eight-band shows and like pack a club, hmm. three or four hundred people, everybody yelling, <laughs> lights, it's loud. Um, and then after that, return to my studio and do a recording session and then shoot a music video to one of the songs they record. Wow. And I, I had the fortune of uh, speaking to a parent who was there on Saturday, and he talked about when he grew up in the BPS system that music education was a really big part of the schooling. So he couldn't graduate unless he knew how to play an instrument, and he felt that a lot of the music training and the arts training is missing right now in schools. Do you agree with that? And how do you feel your work is helping to supplement the lack? That's a good question. I mean, so I don't know. I, I wasn't in BPS schools. I grew up in Western Mass. Um, so I can only talk about like, my kids' experience. They're both in BPS right now. 
uh, or they're all three of them are in BPS right now in two schools. Um, so both those schools have a full-time music teacher, which is awesome. Um, I think that's probably a really tricky job. Um, I'm glad I have my job instead of that. I can't <laughs> imagine teaching like 25 kids all at once. Hmm. Um, uh, and that's been great. Uh, there's no requirement to learn an instrument, um, but I know, so at the Orenberger, Making Music Matters and Berkeley both offer private lessons and group lessons in the school. So my kids are doing that. So my kids are getting a music class uh, and like a small group lesson on an instrument. And then my oldest son is getting also another group lesson on an instrument. So they're getting a lot. Um, it'd be cool to have a requirement to play an instrument. I'm sure it would motivate a lot of people, but there isn't one right now. Mm. Uh, and speaking of your children, uh, you have three of them. All three of them are also musicians as well. Um, can you talk about kind of how they gravitated and found their, their own taste in music? Sure. Um, I mean, so they were exposed to music instantly when they were born. I mean, I'm a musician. I listen to music all the time. There's a constant parade of students coming through the, the studio in the basement to learn. Um, so they just assumed that music was something everybody does right from the beginning. Um, always treated it really casually. They just kind of played when they felt like it. We'd go down in the studio and jam. It was a fun activity. Uh, and as they got older, they're, they're now all part of the, some of the bands I teach. So I meet with them once a week as if they're an outside student. Uh, and they play the same shows as everybody else. Hmm. And for our viewers who are interested in maybe getting lessons for themselves or for their children, how can they do so? So you can email me at mike at machinegunstudios.com and you can check out my teaching website, which is mikeirwinguitarlessons.com. Uh, and there's plenty of, a good page to check out on that is the music video page, which has all the videos that the students produced last year and live videos of all their shows. It's a fun, it's a fun watch if you have a few minutes. Oh, I love that. I'm definitely going to check that out. Mike, once again, thank you so much for being here today, and can't wait to see your students uh, rocking the rock in the future. Thanks very much for having me. This year, kids ruled the world at Rosendale Porch Fest, and their young musical talent was the spotlight of the event. This weekend, as hundreds of people came out to enjoy the live music, but what they may not have expected was who they were going to be jamming out to. The dozens of young performers drew crowds of people in as they performed classics. These young folks were extremely passionate about their musical interests and were both thrilled and nervous to perform in front of the Rosslindale crowd. I just like tune everyone out except my band. I just look like at something else. Like I look at my delay, like fingers playing. I really like focus. So like I get everything right and, and I just tune everything out except the music that I hear. Friends, family and new fans came out to support the various young bands. And it just brings out people, you know, into neighborhoods and people get to know each other that maybe they wouldn't have had the opportunity otherwise. And it's a great shared experience and it's one of the things I love about Boston. And the performers were not shy about expressing their love for music. You have people to, like, know how you feel, like, you feel nervous, you can talk to them, like, oh, it's okay, you've done this before, you have all the, like, you're talented enough to do this, you got this. One group of young ladies felt strongly about the stereotypes of women in the industry. In most of the bands that I've seen, um, the, 
that are um, women and men, the girl just sings, and, and it's important that like Tati and Avani are on guitar and keyboard just to show that everybody else can do what they can do as well. It was clear that these young folks were shining brightly in their performance, and we hope to see these artists again at the next Porch Fest. Dr. Alexander Alvarado is next on our BNN News Interviews, uh, and he is a licensed clinical psychologist and the founder and executive director of Thriving Center of Psychology, a mental health platform that exclusively matches people to qualified psychologists and therapists. I had a great conversation with Dr. Alvarado about finding the right fit when it comes to therapy and how Thriving Center of Psychology is making that happen. Here's the interview. Dr. Alvarado, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, coming out of the pandemic, mental health is a very popular topic right now, um, especially mental health in the digital space. And there seems to be a lot of options, a lot of resources. We have things such as talk space. We have head space. Is this proliferation of resources right now a good or bad thing? You know, it's a great question, and I think if I had to choose one, I would say I'd rather there be, you know, a plethora of resources than none. However, that does come with its own challenges, especially someone who's looking for therapy, because they might not know which which option is a quality option. You know, which option uh, has qualified therapists, and which is just the best at marketing. And I'm curious about you. Uh, you are a clinical psychologist yourself. What uh, what convinced you to embark on this path? What brought you to this career? Sure, um, kind of in the family. My mother was a social worker, so I think that started me on this path. But uh, I think at a young age, once I started delving into it, I knew psychology would be probably anything I wanted to do. It's in marketing, peer relationships, business, psychology. So I thought it was a pretty safe bet. All right. And you founded Thriving Center of Psychology, which is essentially a matchmaking service for people in need of a good therapist. So how exactly do you match people to find the best psychologists for their needs? Yeah, thanks for asking. So we try to do a lot of the legwork ourselves uh, in terms of vetting and making sure that everyone we hire is evidence-based, qualified, um, also personable, easy to talk to therapists. Uh, and then from there is the really uh, important part, and that's matching every potential therapy seeker with a potential therapist. Um, we have a short questionnaire on our website uh, that just basically asks questions, such as who, you know, what type of specialties you're looking help for help with, uh, and then what type of provider you feel most comfortable speaking with. This could be a male or female therapist. This could be um, a person of color or LGBTQ community. Um, and then even the types of styles of therapy. Uh, you know, do you, would you like a therapist who's more goal oriented or someone who maybe takes a back seat, listens and reflects? Uh, so all of these questions we basically take in and then have almost like what we call a white glove approach to matching every single person with mm. their ideal therapist. And what are some do's and don'ts that people should keep in mind uh, during a consult session that will help them find the right therapist for them? Yeah, great question. And, and consult sessions are very important and something we offer for free with any of our matches. So what a consult session is, is basically the, the uh, potential client's way of feeling out if this therapist is the right fit for them. 
So I think it's a very important this matching pro uh, process. And some of the questions I would ask is, have you helped people similar to me? Uh, so if I'm coming in for anxiety, I do want to make sure that this therapist has helped other people with anxiety. Um, another question I would ask is, does this therapist utilize evidence-based treatments? Uh, and basically what that means is just therapies that are backed by science. And I know it's crazy to think that some psych psychologists and therapists do not use science-backed treatments. Uh, but it's a good idea to get uh, some of the treatments down and Google them. And if you see pseudoscience at the top of the page, might be a red flag. A very, very important thing to take note of is how comfortable you are speaking to this person. Hmm. Is this person listening to you? Do you feel like you're being heard? Um, and do they feel confident that they can help you? All right, great. And can you talk a little bit more about the importance of this first session that you have with a therapist? For sure, yeah. No, and I think the first session uh, is extremely important. I think one of our motivation of making sure that the perfect therapist is in front of each of our clients is so that every first session uh, is a positive experience, uh, or at least a productive one. Um, and I, I guess you know the reasoning for that is I've heard from so many people in the past, friends, family members, who have spoken about therapy and have said that I tried that one time and it just didn't work for me. And really what that says to me is that that person didn't find the right fit and uh, that therapist might not have been the best for them. And what tends to happen if they have poor experiences in the first therapy session is that they generalize that to all of therapy, which is just not true. So. Definitely. And there is a lot of stigma about reaching out for help um, when people are in need. Uh, what are, well, what exactly would you say is the best time to start therapy and who should see a psychologist? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, yesterday for most people, but I guess my, my favorite rule of thumb for when to seek a therapist is uh, if you've been thinking about speaking to somebody, chances are it's probably time. Um, but in, in a very cliche way, it's true that everyone can benefit from seeking therapy. If there's something in your life that you realize you might need some help with. Um, we also have a lot of people who are functioning very well in life and they just want an extra benefit of that outside perspective and ways to improve. So really anyone can, can benefit from an outside perspective of a therapist. So Dr. Alvarado, what should a person know about a psychologist before they go ahead and make the commitment to start paying for sessions? Of course, yeah, so great question. Some of the things that I would make sure I find out about a potential therapist is one, um, do they have the specialties that I'm looking for uh, or reasons that I'm coming in uh, for therapy? Uh, number two, I would make sure that they're utilizing, utilizing evidence-based treatments. So making sure that their treatments are backed by science and just simple asking these questions and then Google searching those theoretical orientations. But a few of the big ones, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, uh, dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, um, or ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy. Those are three of the top ones, but there are plenty. I would just Google. Um, you know, the other question I would usually ask is, you know, what does what does treatments what do treatments usually look like uh, with this therapist or with someone coming in for what you're coming in for? Uh, a therapist should have a pretty good elevator pitch to let you know, uh, you know, what that treatment will look like and around how much time that treatment will take. And in this day and age, is it still important to see a psychologist who lives in the same state as you? Great question. So now with digital telehealth, 
Uh, you don't necessarily have to be in the same state as your therapist. However, that therapist does need to uh, have a license within the state that you are in. So they can be wherever as long as they have the license for your state. Excellent. And uh, for those who are interested in being matched with a therapist, how can they do so? Sure. You can take our short questionnaire at our website at www.thrivingcenterofpsych.com. That's thrivingcenterofpsych.com. Thank you for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. For BNN News, I'm Faith Mathedon. I'll see you next week.